BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Diversity Remix. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. On today's episode, Quick Bites Bites Dust. In our deep dive today, what happens when unlimited hubris, unlimited capital, and a pandemic mix around the launch of a new digital platform? We'll have a look. And in our courage or cringe section, does the real money behind venture capital care about diversity as much as they care about diversifying? Do demand letters from marginalized groups work to advance causes and industries? Or do they make noise without substance and become bait for the cynical? Jared Kushner opines on the challenges of the black community, out of context or out of his mind. And Kanye leaves no stone unturned in his massive, sprawling Joe Rogan interview. Was what he said visionary or just scary? We'll cover these and other scintillating issues on this episode of TDR. I've been looking forward to this uh, to this show ever since I saw the news, Jesus. I, I bet you were. Yeah, you've been. <laughs> this has been on your radar for a while. I think I've been consistent. Yeah, you've been consistent. But frankly, this is one that I think a lot of people have been uh, calling calling out for a while in terms of what really felt from its inception that was ultimately you know destined for failure. Which is Quibi, right? This is, we're going to want to talk about Quibi, of course. So the this that's the reference of the Quick Bites, which, by the way, if there was ever a terrible name for something with a terrible insight, it had to be the name Quibi. The first time I heard the reason why it was called Quibi for Quick Bites, I'm like, oh my, this is a, a complete miss in terms of understanding the core insight as to why people consume content on mobile. A hundred percent. And there's so a, much there's so much of its whatever success it had and its failure that can be almost directly derived to its name. Right. And there's a lot to cover here. And I, I mean, I, I definitely want you to cover the groundwork so we can get into it. But one thing sure. I'll issue right at, at the outset is, you know, it's 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 easy to be a Monday Monday, Monday morning quarterback, which is why yeah. I'm relying on my thoughts from two years ago when when I talk about right. what we're gonna talk about today. And, and you know, I guess let's start with the with the basics, right? So Quibi was being led by you know veteran Hollywood executive Jeffrey Katzenberg, right? Who um, founded DreamWorks, was an executive chairman as well as for Disney, right? For Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone that has, uh, frankly, tons of success, massive content credentials. Yeah, massive content credentials, ability to basically make it rain to some extent as it relates to finding success with content, uh, and also from former. Uh, HP CEO Meg Whitman, right? So some pretty heavy hitters that were brought in right away, which allowed him to raise you know, almost $2 billion in capital, uh, of which a billion of that was actually used to spend um, on content, right? So this is a, a company that for a while, I mean, they, even though they, they basically are shutting down after six months of operating, they officially, I think, launched in April, but it's a company that had been in development and 
and um, you know, buying content, building out the platform for a while, over a year, year and a half, I think I want to say that before. Longer that. than that. Yeah, longer, longer than, than that. that, right? Yeah, yeah. Since 2018, um, middle of 2018, I think is when they yeah, really got started. Actually, you know, I actually have firsthand experience of going in there and meeting with Katzenberg to actually pitch content and this was pretty early on in the in the process, but I think within the first six months that they were they were you know had launched the company and and but right from from the beginning they were very very aggressive in their content acquisition strategy, but in a content acquisition strategy that was very much anchored against top top celebrity. It was all about I think to a large extent about name recognition, getting big names to produce content on the platform, and that seemed to be the driver of the strategy at least early on. And by the way, officially they went. They announced they were defunct. I think it was on Thursday or Friday of last week. Yeah, they they announced that they're that they're closing it, uh, but that the actual shutting down of it is going to happen sometime. But you know, sometime at, at the beginning of December. I think December first is what they're aiming for. What What was your kind of first thought when you saw the the headline? I was a, uh, frankly a little surprised that it happened that quickly. Um, I think there was a lot of question marks about the success, ultimate success of the platform. Um, and obviously, a lot of the early headlines were all tied to, especially from Katzenberg saying that the struggles they were having were entirely due to uh, coronavirus. Yeah. And, and I think that was definitely a contributing factor. But a lot of it had to do with just the approach they were taking to begin with, right? And this lack of understanding that really, if you build a company where its entire value proposition is tied to when people are able to consume content, we're in the, in the middle of doing other things, in between other things. And when then people are sort of now being at home where they're not sort of going from one place to the other, all of a sudden that vibe proposition just seems kind of yeah, flawed. It was exactly. flawed to begin with. It was. But it gets even magnified after that. And that's the problem is that the coronavirus thing almost kind of, um, you know, it, it masks the the flawed aspect of what this thing was from the beginning to my mind. I definitely think it didn't hurt. But if you look at content consumption, over the course of COVID, there's actually been a boon in content consumption, right? Right. Uh, in all, across all formats. They're the complete exception to the rule. They across are. every single platform, pretty much across the board, YouTube, Netflix. So we think about OTT, think about the things that are more specific to uh, social content, mobile-specific platforms. TikTok, great example of that, right? Mobile-specific platform has just skyrocketed in consumption. But I think that's a big part of the, of, of the challenge here, right? So... You really have to start to think about how do you unpack all of the issues that yeah. that um, you know that Quibi had, and maybe the, the, a good place to start is with with uh, with the content because that's where they spent the lion's share of their investment, right? So about a billion dollars. Once again, was very much tied to top Hollywood talent, uh, projects from top studios. Um, but the reality is, the outcome of all that content that they 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 were able to to get, they really weren't able to really find a good hit. Right? Yeah. When you think about most platforms that have gone success, they all have to eventually find that hit. That's going to be the reason why it draws people into the platform. And it felt that for Quibi, they never really did. And I, I have to say, I mean, to me, a big part of that issue was that it was just a lack of understanding of the kind of content that would actually be relevant to a mobile first audience or the kind of use case just to begin with the whole thing from the very beginning is so screwy and it's funny because you 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 talk about that breakout hit and how important that is i think of disney plus right i mean disney has every brand in the world right has you know marvel and lucas and pixar and obviously all the great disney franchises and all these incredible characters but when disney plus came out i try to imagine disney plus without the mandalorian it was like you know what It'd be very different results, I think, because Mandalorian was that 
new thing, the new reason to check out all this Disney content that you already knew existed, much of with much of much of which you'd already seen at some point in your life. And yeah. so it was it had the the potential of being, and I even talked to you about this early, this kind of candy store that people go in and they they eat a bunch of candy and then they get sick to their stomach and they never want to go come back in. Mandalorian was a thing that kept people coming back, I think, you know, day after day, week after week, and led them to go and sample a lot more and now has gotten that foothold. So even for enormous monumental brands, the importance of having that kind of breakout hit, hit um, was important. In the case of Quibi, I would think even more so. And the one just ironic note, I'd love your thoughts on this. I didn't watch a single show on Quibi. In fact, I went through the initial, when it first came out in April, I went through the sign-up process. And the moment I found out that I wasn't going to be able to see absolutely anything without like putting in a credit card, like I was out. I wanted to be able to sample something. I wanted it to, yeah. you know, our well, friends. There's are, a bunch of flaws. So let's take it apart because you let's, can, it's, there's I too mean, much. The, yeah, I don't want to flood the zone. The number zone. of flaws that are there, um, it's just, it's, it's amazing, right? So. Just, but but I, I do want to go back to what you just talked about yeah. in terms of Disney, right? So the thing in case of Disney, I, I agree with you. The Mandalorian as a premium property that could be sort of the new shiny thing. The reason for maybe new people that maybe a little hesitant in terms of, of getting onto the platform, they definitely were very smart about investing in a massive, you know, IP source, which is Star Wars, with brand new content. How do you extend this universe? And they're doing the same thing with Marvel as well, right? So they're creating all these additional shows that are all derivative of this sort of very successful franchise, which is the, the based on the Marvel Universe. So that all makes sense. I agree with you. But I think also Disney historically has always been very good at knowing how to generate interest against IP that is both new and old. Yeah. Right? The thing that I always loved about what they did, and it, it used to bother me early, like before, right? And I'm talking about before the streaming wars, when it was all about getting DV, DVDs the vault, or before. The Disney vault. I know that's Disney where you're vault. going. Yeah. Genius, a, by the way. What a genius, genius strategy, right? How do you create and by the way, that's the of that? That's the reason why I thought that Disney Plus, when it was all you can eat, was kind of a mistake, right? Because like you need to put some of this stuff still in that kind of Disney Vault way. And I, and, and I don't know if they have. Maybe there is some stuff that isn't on the platform because yeah. I have no idea what the extent of it is. But they took a different tack. Rather than, rather than withhold, they offered something new. Right. And what I'm saying is Quibi had a bunch of new stuff, but none of it caught on in the way that one single show on Disney Plus did. Uh, yeah, for sure. So I think Disney Plus has all the benefits of a super strong, just historic IP. It has the benefits of owning IP that has t basically universes, literally multiple universes that you could expand to new IP and do that do that as well. And they were investing in the right kind of content, right? Yeah. And I think the right kind of content that goes beyond just simply having the big name attached to it. And to me, that was a little bit of the challenge that in both speaking with some of the folks there and just kind of seeing what they were acquiring, it felt that the driver was all about if it's a big enough name, we'll take it whether or not it's the right kind of story, whether or not it's a format that really makes sense, whether the kind of story really makes sense by just simply saying, well, well, if you just give me 10 minutes increments and it makes it a quibby story. What makes it a quibby story? I guess it would have been a, a, the, the right question to ask. Is it that it's, a, it's literally a length? If it's 10 minutes, then great. 10 minutes and then with a big name, awesome. Then that's a quibby story. I think that's a tough thing to, to sell through to people because the whole idea that it had to be 10 minutes was not something that was an actual need that people ever you know, said that this is what we actually been looking for. We've been missing the 10-minute mark in premium content. Yeah. It wasn't the case. I remember reading a review that came out in April about – it was something like the top 20 things to watch on Quibi because there was a lot of content at launch with, right? Um, it wasn't that it didn't have enough things. Um, and I remember reading this article. It was like the top 20 shows. And I read – like you know how it starts with the worst one? So like of the 
it was actually more than 20. It was like 30 or 40 shows. But it started with like whatever number it was. And it started to work from worst to best. And every little every little show had a little snippet, like a little one paragraph sentence of a review. Right. And the first one was horrible, like a horrible review. And then as you start going down, they get less horrible. But when you got down to number one, it was just mediocre. Right. Like it never it's got good. And yeah. I noticed that. I was like, well, maybe because it's a new platform, it's a new thing. People don't know. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of shot in Freude, you know, there's your so, ger- so, your so, German yeah. word of the week, which is just people wanting to see this thing fall apart. Maybe there was a lot of that. There too was, in the there beginning. was a lot of that, and I thought it was a li- slightly unfair. I would say, you know, for, uh, speaking about that, I know you were, and I give you credit from the, its inception. You were very pessimistic about the success of something like this. I, I wasn't. I thought there was there was an opportunity there, and maybe it was look, frankly, because. We were, I was at, you know, when I was running uh, Vertical Networks, we were actually pitching some content to them and it was pretty early on. And what the part that I did like about it was a premise that you can build a platform that's entirely dedicated around content specifically for mobile. But the part that I thought that was, I wasn't really seeing was the reason what made it mobile content. Yeah. And the only thing that seemed to be the case in this case for for, for Quibi was there's no, no notion that, well, if it's just 10 minutes in length. Basically, keep everything else the same, the same except for the for the for the length of, of each episode, and that didn't seem like a strong enough proposition as to what we'll make it mobile. Katzenberg's idea was a very big one, right? Which is we've had this kind of cinematic way to storytell, and then we've had this sort of television way to storytell. Now I'm going to introduce a completely new way to storytell. And in fact, you know, you at Vertical and and and, and we together to some extent had similar thoughts. The, the right. part we were lacking was a billion dollars, yeah. you know, uh, and more, $2 billion, and the kind of, you know, star power that was brought to bear. But the idea is a big idea. I think, again, with me, the problem, we have to break it down. I would actually start with the name. I know you were joking, but I would literally start there because I think the name is so emblematic of of everything. And I'll go to that in a second. Let me just make one more note note on the sure. content, though. Because going, you know, the breakout hits never came. But even the things that kind of broke through the surface for me, and I know I'm not the core audience, the idea was for millennials, but the, the thing that broke through for me was when they did the remake of The Princess Bride. I don't know if you – did you hear about that? No, I they, did not. They did it in, in COVID, and it was sort of the sequel. I never even saw it, okay? But it did – it made the trades. I heard people talking about it. People were tweeting about it, that it was something interesting because, A, it was a super, you know, nostalgic, uh, you know, uh, film originally. You could work a lot with it. And the way that it was shot was actually in this kind of COVID tongue-in-cheek way where, like, all the actors were doing it in this very kind of homemade way. And I thought – it's super ironic that the one show that does kind of break through the seam for me that I'm seeing and I'm kind of hearing all about it is the one show that doesn't take advantage seemingly of any of the kind of cinematic qualities or the big, you know, all the things that was supposed to make Quibi Quibi, but this kind of scrappy built because of the virus kind of thing, right. that's the thing that kind of broke through. So that's just the last note on content that I wanted to, to, to offer. But for me, it really does begin with the name. Yeah, the name. Um, I think so much money going through these like big budget shows with a lot of big time. They even have, I think their second part of their content strategy was tied to this concept of what they consider daily essentials. Yeah, which was basically a lineup of programming that, was, of course, was done daily, but it was really focused around kind of recapping, sort of entertainment, sports, and reca- reca- recapping late night shows or giving sports updates. Um, the problem there is that you have content that. And look, we've we've actually recently we're having this conversation about an, an entertainment offering, and the cha- the challenge with entertainment kind of offering that are very broad is that they're also not very differentiated. And you can find tons of this content in other places, places like YouTube for free, by the way. 
So once again, while I could see a part of the food mix in an offering like Quibi, it's not a reason to go to Quibi, right? It doesn't, once again, take advantage of a mobile-only environment. And the, frankly, there are just so many options out there already that it doesn't really help people uh, you know, give them enough incentive to actually want to go into the platform. hundred percent. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's a kind of a misread of what the motivations are or, or the motive, the motivations were in terms of, of what's going to make somebody pay attention to this particular platform. Let me, let me just get it off my chest about a little bit about the name, because you may be, if you're listening to this kind of rolling your eyes a little bit, Hey, we've got all kinds of crazy sounding names and whatever, but I do think that the name is kind of emblematic of some things that went wrong. I'll give you an, you know, just as an example, when, when you're naming things, you know, like in the case case of Quibi, it's a, what's called technically a portmanteau, which is a combination of words, right? Quick bites. And so somebody kind of mashing those words together. But to your point, first of all, just the idea that the quick bites, the way of like chopping up content and that people are interested in just this kind of random snacking of different things right. is such a throwback kind of thing to the early web, to the idea of like, oh, who are these mass of unsophisticated people that just gobble up these little snippets of things and aren't they fun? It's like you're watching you remember like- remember the name Vignette? Vignette. Vignette. Yeah, exactly. Here, vignettes. It, it just it, it <laughs> rang. It rang of splash pages of, right, of things right, like right. that. Right, hits. I got this many hits on my website. Yeah. The moment you hear somebody say hits on your website, you know you're talking to somebody who doesn't know anything about digital. And that's the first thing I thought of when I heard quick bites. I'm like, yeah, because people are always thinking that. That's a real consumer need. I'd like yeah. to have a quick bite of something. I yeah, mean, I'm it, not. I don't have enough time for a full bite, but I do have enough time for a quick bite. A quick bite. And then, and then to the extent that um, that you know, it made sense to have things that are chopped up in, in in these kind of smaller bites. Then you get to what's flawed with the premise, right? Because the premise is people will take a moment when they're waiting in line or in their back of a cab to get wrapped up into this incredible story that's only ten minutes long. And the reality of it is, is that's the domain of the social media scroll. That's the domain of TikTok. The domain of Instagram. Those moments where you you you're not engaging yourself as a as a as being having a story told to you you want to have an update it's more like a news mind that dominates those moments i'm not waiting in line for a cup of coffee or whatever getting gas and going let me engage my mind into a narrative construct even if the you know narrative is unscripted call it right but just the idea of telling me a story at that moment when i'm doing something else fundamentally, to my mind, misunderstands the way that consumers actually operate. Yeah. And I think the challenge here, I think it goes back to, right, the premise of quick bites, but also when you make something just for mobile, right? That was my concern with it. When you create an offering that's just for mobile, but yet what you're competing with and you're in the premium space of video content, there is a reason why Netflix can't compete directly against you in the just from a portion of it with also premium and better funded and probably better quality content. Of course. Well, they right? already are mobile. And they're because they already are mobile, right? They're not exclusive of mobile, right? And I think that's to me was a, the big they, they really hung their hat on the strategy that it had to be just for mobile, but yet did not build an offering that was really made it unique to mobile. They built an offering that could be easily replicated by anyone else that's also already on mobile, like a Netflix, like Disney Plus, like basically every single OTT offering is already out there. So in essence, you're competing in a really crowded space with an and with an offering that is not at all unique to the space that you're actually in, which is mobile. 
with nothing that differentiates yourselves or takes advantage of being in a mobile environment. Correct. And to me, like screen sharing, like social media. Honestly, like out of everything we could talk about, to me, that was the biggest problem with, with, with this offering. That was the issue. And it was it was reflected in their strategy, right? One of the issues that they also had is when they started to realize that, hey, we're in a pandemic, we're creating content that, yes, can be consumed on mobile, but not but could also be consumed on television, just 10 minutes videos, like you do YouTube videos all the time, or basically any other kind it's of content. My kid's favorite channel is YouTube on the big screen. They exactly, watch all they watch right? is five minutes, ten so minutes. They just are and it took them a while to frankly actually the the saddest thing that I read is that Quibi um released the app for Fire TV and Roku set top boxes. The same week, or the, actually the day, a day after, I think it was a, I think it was a day, uh, the day before, you're right. The, the day, day before, before they announced announcing the closing of, uh, of Quibi. How sad is that? It's like, you finally realize, like, you know what? Maybe the content that we created, even if it's good, is really not that unique to mobile. So maybe giving it a more place where people can consume it might be a good thing. And by the time they get to it, uh, it's just like the game's already over. Yeah. I think that was a major, major mistake. You know, I was a big fan, and and you know because of obviously the, the the previous company that I ran of the power of mobile first or mobile only storytelling. But at least my theory on that was always that if you don't uniquely take advantage of the mobile environment to tell that story, then you're not really like fully. It's not really a mobile only offering. It's only sort of a point of distribution, yeah. which is how I see YouTube and all those places. Is that those are not necessarily mobile only. They're a great way that people can consume content. But it's not unique to it. Um, I think there's also a and difference. I think that's in, a big part of the, the challenge here. There's also a difference in what you were trying to do in your past role of kind of creating that sort of de- daily active user, weekly active user, and having it be more about this sort of um, you know serialized kind of approach, as opposed to we're going to create these sort of premium stories and break them out over ten chapters. So, right. Um, anyway, for for me, the 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 name and some of the premise, all of it just indicated, frankly, folks who are a little bit out of touch, kind of the you know the old. Your 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 older uncle when you're a kid who's like I'm I know what the kids want you know what I mean I'm gonna give them what they like it just it it, it just really had that odor well, of I think nothing makes it more out of touch than when they made the decision to not allow people to actually share any of the content or even snippets of the content or promote any way using social platforms yeah I think one one of the really popular uh, memes I guess that came out on Quibi early on was actually because someone recorded a different phone playing video from like a pirated you movie or something created like, yeah. no way to tell people that you that, were watching that you it. actually were discovered that you were, that you were on it they discovered a cool show no way to tell your friends and family nothing how to be able to share share this content but it's i like think that the, the completely whole, misunderstanding but, the way that digital operates and the whole positioning though of quibi i mean it came out very much as this like it's an amazing shiny object it's sleek and beautiful it's basically iphone for content and you know what if we've got some quirky rules that's just because we're so amazing and so exclusive so you could almost get away with it for a little bit going like, yeah, we're not going to operate like Instagram does or anybody else. We're going to do our own thing because we're worth it. Like there was a little bit of that kind of positioning. And that's where, you know, to me, one of the initial questions of this episode is about this kind of hubris because that at some point did begin to show that it wasn't so much strategic. It was just this sort of overlook that 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 happened with respect to a lot of these a lot of these different things. Yeah, and doing your own thing, I think, is fine. And being a trailblazer, it's fine. I mean, to some extent, Katzenberg has a lot to hang his hat on in terms of what he was going to do through his career. But when you're completely misunderstanding the ecosystem that you're trying to operate in, and the way that especially young people consume, share, and actually discover content, I think that's a big part of the problem. I mean, 
besides the fact that they were had, I think, misaligned content strategy, didn't understand how to drive, drive social, then you get into even technology issues, right? They're actually currently still going through an ongoing lawsuit with Echo, which is a mobile interactive platform. As a matter of fact, I would say Echo and... You know, you know this, Charlie, because you know we obviously Full worked for a while. But I was, I have been a big advocate for Echo for years, right? And I always thought of Echo. For those of you that are not familiar, it is a mobile. I don't know if it's mobile only at this point, but at least it was before a mobile first platform. But its thesis is that while it is creating a combination of scripted and unscripted premium content, it's trying to deliver an interactive content experience where now you're consuming a content in a matter that you're having to engage with it, giving you decision trees, sort of taking to different, through, through, through different paths. Choose your own adventure. Do, yeah, do your own adventure. And sort of leaning into the interactivity of, of, of your phone to enhance the story, to make it more personalized to you. We've actually built some series for them uh, in, the, in our previous organization. But I thought that in that case, look, whether or not you agree that's the right content approach or the right how premium it is, what it was at least is trying to lean into what makes mobile a unique environment to consume content is the fact that you are able to interact with it in a much better manner using your phone. At least there, there's a there's a reason to have it. Sure. Or the fact that as a consumer, your context personally may be changing because you may be on the road. You may be in a bus. You may be moving. There may be mobility happening around you as you're doing that, which you can weave into storytelling. There's all different kinds of ways to play with it, right. which this interactivity, you can lend itself to that idea of storytelling. But, but there's a clear value proposition for the content and the platform. And the platform. And, and, in, in that kind of environment and something that could be never 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 really you know figured out and I think the last piece probably to talk through is is the pricing strategy right the you model this, the, the model, model itself right which you is yeah a five dollar uh, per month um, ad supported experience that you can do or an eight dollar I think it was eight dollars right it was like seven ninety nine I think yeah yeah, yeah. eight dollars for no ads five so, with ads or eight without ads tell me about pricing strategy Charlie what was your well look there? I mean full disclosure again because I, I know you actually met with these guys and 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 had some business dealings with them um, I actually talked to them in the middle of two thousand eighteen this would be right literally right as I was leaving uh, me too. They uh, a recruiter for their for them reached out to me about their head of sales, head of revenue role. So I spoke with them, and they told me about this idea, right? And it was like even before I knew anything about the content, I knew the name, which I instantly hated. And then they started talking to me about the model and this kind of five dollar with ads, eight bucks without ads. And it the, the very first thought that I had was, okay, wait a minute. So then, what you want is you want people to buy the subscription because the the price point is so similar between those, and what you're competing with is something like YouTube, which is $0 with ads or $10 or whatever it is without ads. So it seems to me that you're driving the subscription side of this equation, and I find it really kind of unsavory from a consumer standpoint to charge and, charge a subscription and get ads. I'm old school about that. I've never understood that, and I, I don't agree with it. So I didn't like it, but I said, no, no problem, because you're probably trying to drive subs. Right. And then they told me what their plan was in terms of the overall revenue picture, what they expected to get from advertisers, the impressions they were hoping to, to drive. And my, my first thought was, how are you going to create the kind of capacity that you're saying you're going to do these billions of eyeballs? by having a pricing strategy like this. It doesn't lend itself to the kind of capacity you're going to need to build in order to fulfill on the ad deals that you say you're going to go make. And so at, the, at that very moment, there was something rotten in Denmark for me there. And then I asked the question of, who are you competing with? Right. Or, or what the value proposition, this is it, what the value proposition was, and the, and the answer was um, millions of eyeballs. 
was what came back to me. That was the value prop. I said, oh, like YouTube, you mean? And, and it just seemed that they, they were literally getting into the ring against these behemoths that from at least an advertising perspective could just turn their lights out in two seconds. They had no scalability, none of, none of the things that you look for. You, you have to have special creative, all the wrong things, right? All the mistakes that we'd seen in the past. And so just those things immediately, the idea that we're going to make it this kind of thing that's going to limit the amount of people who are going to want to have the ad-based experience. But at the same time, our value proposition is tons of ads. Like none of those things really wash for me from a, from a just professional standpoint. Yeah. You know, thinking typically when you think about pricing strategies for anything, right, you can kind of look at it two ways. It's like, we're going to go out to build scale and then monetize that scale, or we're going to build a very premium uh, audience and premium revenue associated with it, right? And in case it could be subscription, et cetera. I think the challenge with that, with that pricing strategy that, that you know, we mentioned is that if you're trying to go for scale, which is part of what they were trying to do is like, why would you have an immediate barrier to entry to build that scale. That's my point. And I think the only reason why you Five would do that is if you're so overly confident about how just awesome this thing is that you're building, how great this content is, that people just won't wait, can't wait to actually see it in all scenarios. Uh, I think that's the only reason why you could somehow kind of convince yourself that that's the right way to do it. I mean, the reality is I think if they did want to have... Like pretty much everyone else, you think about Spotify, you think about almost every single platform that has ad supported and subscription, in almost every single case, it's like, great, we'll give you the, the you could access the platform, we'll get scale because you're, when you're on here, we could sell those eyeballs or And it's or, good or marketing ears. too. It, you tell your friends, it's people all, are on exactly, it, they experience right? it. It makes it much easier for people to, to onboard, to you know basically get usage into the, into the platform, to build behavior. Um, but yeah, having a price regardless, I just think is, it was pretty ill-conceived and the only thing I could think of as to why you want to run the run is if you really have to believe that this thing is just so, so great, so yeah. different than anything else. But it's then when we talk ship. about the actual value proposition, right. it's like super so weak. We're, so we're going to break the established you know, industry with respect to how stories are made, the format, we're going to do vertical, we're going to do horizontal, and then we're going to forego all of the pricing models and things that we've learned from these enormous, we're going to do our own thing. And again, that's where I keep coming back to a little bit of this hubris that has to be a play here. And we'll get into that in a little bit, in a second. But just the last point on the, on the, on the model and on the advertising thing, you know, uh, Meg Whitman and Katzenberg did go out and they closed something like a hundred million dollars, right? Worth of advertising deals with like four people or five people. And it was touted in all the business trades, as a significant accomplishment. And of course it is. It's not easy to get people to give you $100 million. I don't care what it is. However, in context, okay, you have Jeffrey Katzenberg and Matt Whitman walking into the room, talking to a CMO, okay? There's a little bit of star factor just right there. And that's For just sure. the truth, okay? Number one. Number two, it's a brand new thing and everybody seems to be talking about it. And number three, what are you selling? You're saying, give me $20 million and I'll deliver $20 million worth of ads. Well, okay, like that's not – if they were saying, look, give me $20 million. We're going to invest in this company, see if we can build it. Who knows what will happen? Trust me, the outcome would have been different. So they were basically betting about this future capacity that never came. And, 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 and I'm not saying it was easy, but I'm saying walking in there with Katzenberg and Meg Whitman and saying, P&G, give me $20 million, and I promise I'll give you $20 million of value. And if, you, and if I don't, take your money back. Right. In the, in the grand scheme of things – and I think the the starstruck is definitely probably a contributor, contributor factor. I also agree with you that 
you know, well, the thing is, like, you know, we've seen this in marketing all the time, is whenever you bring up something that it's, like, shiny, first of its kind, people get excited. And we're going to put some dollars behind it. Also, the the just the star factor of the content as well, right? Huge. Because they're betting on all of that, right? I'm sure they brought some of those people to the pitches. I'm sure. And that will get you some of the, some of these dollars here. But you're right. I think the, the reality is when you look at the actual terms of those deals, this stuff is not sort of locked in. I mean, it could be the case. And if they did, good for them. What is like 100% non-refundable? I doubt it. Doubt it. Because it has to be all tied to actual delivery, right? And the reality is there was no delivery. I mean, even though they were you know, able to get some initial subscription pickup, the reality was those were all on the, on the free accounts, right? And I forget now whether it was 90 days or free account before it turned into a paid account. But their conversion was just terrible, right? So... I think the so we were talking about the marketing dollars. Yeah, they were able to use some of that noise in the market and and buzz that they were generated because of a who the you know who the leaders were and b some of the talent they were able to bring on board uh, for the content to get some initial interest. But there just was no there there, and I think that is ultimately what probably um, caused the demise of these guys: this inability to retain, to build or retain any kind of real audience, no clear definition of what is the actual value proposition with talent and talent and content that seems completely misaligned for what they are and ultimately competing against everyone with nothing that is at all differentiated. Now, let, we've diagnosed, and and sorry for any, but we have, by the way, we know some people who work at Quibi, obviously, and so we don't mean um, by any of this to be insensitive to the fact that folks are, you know, look, out of work, looking for new things. We're going to stop beating up here on Quibi and turn the table on on talking about what we perhaps would have thought to do differently or whether or not there's ever any moment where Quibi could have worked under different circumstances. But I do want to just end on the the nitpicking part of it just with the, the, the team themselves, right? So, and what I mean by that is if you look at all of these these potholes that they seemingly fell into, a lot of it seems to indicate, it indicates to me a bit of a distance between the people making decisions and the people consuming. And so, you know, I took a look at, at the, you know, their site and who their officers were and everybody who was involved in that. And I mean, I'm going to be perfectly frank, you know, besides the woman who ran PR, it looks like the Swedish sailing team, you know what I mean? Um, in terms of, you know, level of, uh, of connection to culture, et cetera. And I wonder what role that has to play with this. I mean, look, Katzenberg and Meg Whitman, well, not Katzenberg and Meg Whitman, but Doug Herzog and, and Katzenberg were the people that were making the content decisions from what I understand. These are people who, they were born in the 50s. Right, I mean, making you know content for Gen Z, and maybe I'm being too cynical there. We 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 can make content for other groups and whatever. I'm not trying to put people in boxes, but what role does that play? What role did that play? The people who are actually making these decisions right. for the content, all these things, who they were. But I, but I, are you sort of speaking to both like the the gap in in age, understanding the the culture, also maybe lack of diversity as being another factor. I'm speaking about whether what role did that play in any of the issues that we've articulated? Because at the end of the day, models and marketing and all this stuff, okay, people make those decisions. Yeah. And so if you look at who the people were, we're talking about a, a Gen Z and millennial product, overwhelmingly by its very demographic nature, a diverse and youth play. And the people making those decisions, at least outwardly, are not representing, representing those particular cohorts. And so does that play some role in this on an, you know, just honestly. Yeah. Well, I think the first part, what you're saying about the people making the decisions with both, you know, Katzberg and Meg Whitman, you know, to the degree, whether or not, I think what matters there is more how much did they embrace 
POVs, the, the, the sort of input from those that are more directly connected with that core audience that we're trying to target. If they didn't, and you know, based on what we're seeing here, it's questionable how much they did. Otherwise, they probably would have made a little bit different decisions in terms of how it gets promoted, what content gets actually greenlit, et cetera. Then it probably did play a role, right? I think the actual, in this specific case, I think diversity itself well, I think it definitely plays a role in making better content, et cetera, but they had so many issues already, you know, that even with more, I think even with more diverse stories, and frankly, I don't know, but that's part of the problem. Like, yeah. I don't have no idea what, what content they actually had on there because it was so hard for it to get discovered. It's hard for people to actually share what, what it was other than knowing, like, there was people that were, you know, talents. Uh, Chrissy Teigen, right, the the, the wife of, of, John of John Legend. She had a show there where she was like this judge. She's pretty likable. She's pretty diverse. Seems like that would be the kind of thing that people will actually like. So even in cases where I think they may have gotten the right people that are, are socially connected, you're like you're taking away all the tools to make that content be successful by building this this platform that is just not not at all aligned to how people want to engage content in the, in, in those in those mediums. Yeah, and I, I, so I, I wonder. In, in I guess two questions for you. The the first one is, you know, under what circumstances could have this could this have succeeded? Yeah, I think uh, I think of it two ways, at least two ways. Well, one is that um, better understanding the value proposition that you're bringing to the table. Like if you're going to make a mobile-only content, mobile-only offering, then you have to understand and really trying to build an experience that is actually enhanced by the mobile, by using your mobile. Because if you don't, then I think it's a miss. Then there's no reason to make it mobile-only. Then it should be across all platforms, right? So you literally have to pick a path. I think the reality is they created a product that was supposed to be for mobile-only with a content strategy that really applied for really anything, social to some extent, OTT to a large extent. So that's where, to me, is a massive disconnect, right? So you literally have to pick one path or the other. Look, could I see Quibi at yet another streaming OTT platform that is out there? Sure. And I think if they would have taken that approach, I don't believe that in six months they would have shut down. Because at minimum, you would have had a better opportunity, less barriers of people actually being able to consume the content, right? Of course, it's putting aside their pricing model, right? Let's say they got the pricing model, right? They say, look, we're going to do an a ad-supported experience that is free, and then we're going to have one that is you know paid, but there's no ads, that is premium. Great. Let's say they fix that first off, because that just seems like just dumb, but let's say they fix that. The second thing was like, okay, as a content strategy versus where we're going to live and who we're going to be with, which is going to be, you know, we're going to give you an alternate version of content that maybe leans on some mobile interactivity, maybe leans on some mobile ways to engage with the content, but that is ultimately accessible everywhere. Um, and then we're going to go talent first, talent heavy, but with talent that is all has strong digital and social sort of uh, uh, audiences, right? Yeah. That's a difference. By the way, that's already a completely different company, completely different strategy. Totally. But my point is, like, that's ways to be able to suffer. Or you go the other route. Hey, we're going to do a mobile only, but we're going to lean hard on mobile. To some extent, you know, I talked, and I know I've, I've before, I definitely was a broken record about Echo, but go down that route. We're going to really double down of what we think it takes to engage people with premium, and I put in air quotes, content around mobile. It's not going to be just pure social, like in the case of TikTok, but it's going to be premium content, premium storytelling, but we're going to do everything we can to try to enhance that content in a mobile environment. Okay, then do that. But when you do neither, I think that's when you get yourself into, into, into problems. Yeah, I just wonder about like what actually led to them making a decision last week um, with you know money in the bank 
that there was just no path forward, right? In other words, some of the things you just talked about seem like even fixes that you could take another year to to do, right? And you could. You had enough money in the bank. Yeah, I I, I heard. Well, I almost hate to say it because I don't. I didn't read it myself, but I remember someone. I've heard someone talk about this. But at least from what the and this I'm saying as rumor because I don't have it confirmed here by an article or anything or anything that says that. But I think it had something to do with some of the covenants that were tied to the investments that it had to hit certain subscriber thresholds. thresholds. Uh, and if not, then it was like additional triggers there. And they knew they weren't going to hit those, so they rather just kind of give the you know. I mean, even that. But by the way, that in and of itself is fascinating to me. Like, who Once sets again, those like, thresholds? I'm not saying that as, as a fact. Right? Okay. I'm, I'm simply saying that that's that's one of the, the theories that I heard. Right. It I just haven't read that directly, it, so I can't say it, it as. Would as it a surprise fact. you though if that was built into some of these investment agreements? That if somebody no, not at all. I, I think especially kind of when you're getting that amount of money, yeah. and if there's going to be follow up investment, um, yeah, I could definitely see that being sort of tied to the you know so the capital that they're getting. Um, and probably more tied to this, I'll assume probably the second tranche of money, right? Because they raised capital twice. It wasn't, they did, I think, a billion dollars the first time and then they followed it up with another, yeah. I think another billion. There's just so, so much that that I think was um, headwinds for Quibi. Not, by the way, not the least of which, which we haven't even talked about, is that I think that the country is going through a moment right now where the idea of short form, quick bite, headline driven, shared text, that actually people are coming to some collective understanding that for the most part, that hasn't been really good for us. And I think that's even driven some of the discovery around podcasts and audio and look at what Audible's doing with like basically full on audio movies. So I think that they're also at a moment in time when if anything, the sort of puck is going in in the direction of give me like kind of more thoughtful, more engaged, if it's new, give me something thoughtful, more engaging, more intimate, deeper. And I, I've already got the things for Gobble, 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 which is, you know, again, TikTok, YouTube, the things you can just sit there and scroll mindlessly and watch a gazillion things or get it while you're, you know, waiting for coffee that they were trying to fill. So in addition to the marketing, the branding, the all these things, I think they're also approaching a pandemic. They're also approaching it at a time where the tide is, I think, turning where people are looking for new things that actually give them kind of a deeper access rather than a summary or a compressed thing or a condensed thing. I think there's a lot of major, major players who are in that in that world yeah, right now. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's an interesting point. Uh, I don't know if I agree with you. Simply, just, I just don't know if the data supports it, right? I think Probably it not, costs, but it sounds awesome. It sounds great. And honestly, I think to some extent, I kind of hope it is true, right? I hope that we are coming to a moment people are looking for more more than just the the you know that headline, more than just you know that clickbaiting, right? To a dopamine hit, the dopamine hit, right? I think that's in the case where I think the case you can make is podcasts. That's probably one one case you can make in terms of this need for longer form content that people want to consume. That's one. But this is also the time where TikTok is at an all time high. A company that just skyrocketed over the last two years, you know, is 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 you know it's. Having so much success and creating this completely mindless, engaging, but precisely experience. for the opposite thesis, right? Which is we're going to create super engaging stuff that somebody can put together in their bedroom in twenty five minutes, not a crew of two hundred people shooting a five million dollar four minute clip, right? Which is like literally the other end of the spectrum, right? Right. Well, yeah, that's but that's also a part of a very different content strategy, very different tools within the platform to really be tailored to really empowering any, any creative, letting people be able to build on top of other IP, which is also a super interesting sort of approach that they took and that was unique to them. So 
that's the thing. Like, you know, I'm all for people that are coming out with completely innovative ideas that don't want to just follow the trend. Um, but then you also have to, like, listen to your consumer base and at some point make those calls a little bit quicker. If, like, maybe the strategy that you have in place is just not not the right one. Yeah. Well, getting close to the consumer and understanding what makes them tick is always a good idea. And it seems to me that on some level, that fundamental step was sort of missed. Right. And the cachet of the people, the names, the money, and all of that got in the way of some pretty sound kind of, you know, consumer thinking and research, right? right? Because this just missed the mark. What is kind of amazing, though, we think about it is like nearly $2 billion raised and for Tosology sort of flushed on the toilet on an idea that just just when you understand the core insight around the name, you're like, oh man, like there's some there's some problems here. Yeah. And that's the part that it is kind of amazing that, you know, in some ways it's great that we live in a country where that's possible, frankly. But right? it's because also drive innovation. It's also a little bit of the emperor has no clothes, right? Potentially. Now uh, again, we've <laughs> we've been so, yeah. we've been saying full disclosure, Jesus met with uh Quibi and the team and tried to sell shows and you know, I was, uh, um, uh, you know, at least on some level recruited to be part of their team. And so we speak with some insider experience. And I did actually at one point in my career at Univision get a chance to sit and meet with Jeffrey Katzenberg, very, very smart guy, obviously. But I really asked myself if whether or not the people that were around him would take a look at something like, you know, when they came back to the to the early, the Skunk Works team that was there two and a half years ago and said, we've got it. Here's the name. Quibby, quick bites. Like, did the people in that room go like, yeah, no, that's really, really not a good, this, the whole idea that underpins that name is bad. In fact, explaining how we came up with the name undermines what you said you're trying to do. Like, all of it's bad. It's not quick bites. It's cinematic, beautiful storytelling. Like, did anybody really challenge him? And I'm just speaking personally. It's tough to do, man. A guy who like ran Disney and you know did Little Mermaid and like is a icon of it's content. Tough world. to bet on the guy, to be honest, because he has so much success. I mean, so I, I get how that stuff happens. But you're right. Look, to me, one of the best examples of a great name, and I'm biased because I worked there. It was uh, Accenture, right? And just to, I'll give you the quick the quick version of this. When I joined the company, it was still considered. Uh, it was under. Um, it was called Anderson Consulting because it, it used to be part of Arthur Anderson and they broke up the consulting arm. There was a lawsuit. Basically, Anderson Consulting lost the suit, uh, won the suit, I'm sorry, but they lost the name, right? So they had to rebrand. And we, when I was there, like literally my first year of working there, they went through a big branding process of how to come up with a new, with a new name. And the, the ultimate winner of the, 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 the name was Accenture. And the reason that was the name because it came from the phrase accent on the future, and the whole company was positioned about how to kill, how to help their clients bet on the future, prepare for the future. And to me, when I heard that name, I was like, that's perfect. Like that completely captures the essence of what this company is all about, what the value you're trying to build. And to me, it's actually one of the best examples. And that was a case where, of course, it was already a company that had been around for a long time that had its sort of legs underneath and knew what its value proposition was and then used that to then back into what the name was going to be going forward. But that is a great example of a name that completely, in my mind, and a little bit similar to the case of Quibi, right, where I was taking this phrase and mashing it together, but but also felt very organic, felt really good. And actually, when you explain the name, people were like, oh, I get it. Yeah, It only reemphasizes 
the value that you're saying you're, you're, you want to deliver. And I'm sure that the T-U-R-E, the suffix, was maybe related to architecture or things like that, where it's like a structure. In other words, accenting a structure for the future or something like that. I can definitely see how that how that's valuable. Well, whatever that was didn't probably happen here. And if somebody, and who no. knows, with $2 billion, no they probably paid for the name or somebody advised. And uh, hopefully not. Yeah, we don't want to don't want to make too much about the name, but it is just super emblematic of what happened. Okay, so um, so that's our friends at uh, at, Quibi. at Quibi. I'm not sure what else we can say besides the fact that obviously we hope the people who are there well and that they move on to their next thing. And you know, you always have to give credit f- to people for starting something new and to trying something different because we've done that in our career. So that's definitely a good thing, but uh, definitely lessons learned. Okay. Changing gears, Jesus, quick bites. <laughs> Let's do our own quick bites and go through- No, no, uh, no. no quick bites. No, no quick bites. Deep morsels. Um, let's uh, let's talk about at least in some sort of succinct fashion a few things that have happened in kind of uh, diversity headlines. Why don't we start with uh, our friends at Yale University? Yeah, so Yale University, um, well, recently, uh, David Swenson, who is the- Basically, the the you know legendary investor who's been managing the endowment for for Yale uh, recently announced that he's going to be basically to all of its seventy U.S. money managers across a variety of asset classes uh, that diversity was not going to be moved front and center, right? And basically, what he told these firms is that from here on out, they will be measured annually on their progress in increasing diversity of their investment staff, from hiring to training to mentoring. Uh, to the retention of women and minorities, right? Now, this is a, a an endowment of $32 billion, which he has been running Thir- since 1985 and has grown it significantly. But this idea of, 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 of now using diversity as a metric that he's going to be looking at to know what basically funds he's going to be investing in uh, is, is really interesting. It kind of falls in line to the conversation we've had over the last few weeks around Microsoft, the stuff going on with Starbucks, this idea that, listen, not only do we believe that diversity is important, but now we're going to use it as a metric for success, so a metric that we're going to measure against and that's going to help determine where we're putting our money one way or the other. Your, your thoughts? Well, a couple things. Number one is you almost need to say that number a few times just so people understand what it is. $32 billion is the endowment of Yale University. Right. The endowment— which I think it's only second to Harvard, which I think is around $40 billion. I mean, these are you know GDPs of some countries, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you've got that endowment. That endowment itself invests through a series of money managers, and that money itself ends up in a lot of VC funds to actually invest in new tech and new different things and whatever else, right? So this is almost like it's like the first honeypot, and then from that, a bunch of other things happen. And so these money managers were all told, hey, if you guys don't get your own houses diversified, then we may even be pulling some of this – endowment right. funds from you to manage basically is, is what happened. And I think also part of the fun of this sec, this segment for me is having to pick whether it's, you know, courage or cringe, because oftentimes they kind of fall somewhere in the middle for me and I have to yeah. make a decision. And so I'm interested in this. I think we're probably going to disagree on every single one of them this week, which is fun. Okay. So for me, um, it's a cringe. Okay. And I'll tell you why. The reason why it's a cringe for me is that I believe the whole the, the the transformation around diversity that is happening and needs to happen on an accelerated level is a continuum, right? What what this does is it basically says the people managing the endowment 
for the people who are spending that money, you guys need to be yourselves more diverse, more diversity in your own ranks, right? But I believe that that is literally step one of what is a continuum that if that's the message to these guys, we basically undermine ourselves in the process. The continuum looks to me like this. First, you tell the money managers to diversify their own ranks. Then you say that they have to diversify in terms of the businesses they're investing in based on the people running them. And then lastly, on the problems that those businesses are seeking to solve. Like it's a horizontal thing. Yes, we want money managers to be more diverse. Yes, we want them to invest in more diverse founders, but we want them to invest in ideas that are rooted in diversity as, a, as an area of strength, revenue, thriving, opportunity, whatever. Like it's a continuum. This does step one and I think runs the risk of going, oh, now we got to spend 15 years getting step one done and we're going to forget about step two and three. That'll happen another 100 years when the endowment is $10 trillion for all I know. So for me, despite the fact that I think it's a noble effort and it's very nicely done, I can imagine very polite people and they probably drink tea at four o'clock in the afternoon. It's still, nevertheless, a cringe. But but the cringe in this case for you is not that they're doing step one, how you describe it, is that they're not doing all three steps at once? Correct. And because you have to choose. It's not, it's not courageous to me to take that one step when there's enough evidence and data and information. If you really cared about it, you'd go deep and figure it out. It's not courageous for me to just you take that one step, which is, which is fine. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's one step out of a continuum of things that could be done in this world. In, in this uh, financial world that aren't going to get done as a result of this. And so for that reason, I can't put it in the courage category. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I'm, pro I'm probably in the opposite of that, right? And I put it as courageous and, you know, for, probably for a number of reasons, but let's start with, with the following. I mean, there was a 2019 study that was commissioned by the Knight Foundation, right, where they found that women and minority-owned firms held less than 1% of assets managed by mutual funds, hedge funds and private equity funds and real estate funds in 2017, even though their performance was on par with such with such firms. There is, when you look at the investment community uh, in general, there is a massive gap in diversity. Um, what's been interesting, I think, in this post-George Floyd uh, moment is that you have seen much more activity from both traditional VCs, fund, et cetera, that are starting to dedicate some portion of their funds to try to support more diverse um, entrepreneurs, um, you've seen some creation of small, but you know, and niche funds that are specifically being you know put together to go directly at trying to solve some of these problems and either investing in ideas that are directly impacting more diverse communities or founders that are that are that. Are that. And in some cases, fund managers that are this diverse themselves, right? So you've seen a lot of that sort of rise is happening as well. I think when you are someone like like David Swenson and and you control thirty two billion dollar endowment. Which is interesting. Right? We, we just finished talking about Quibi, and to some extent, we're both like a little bit marble that this At company two billion. Out, that was two billion, right? Not even ten percent of the endowment of less than ten percent of the endowment of uh, of Yale, right? That single like, digit, right? That, that's 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 what we were talking about. And part of what I what I think about when I see something like this is that I think when you have some of these managers of these large you know assets and have that much that much uh, capital that they control, what they say matters. What criteria they put forth for what they're going to investment matters. If these guys, for example, things that I've seen before is people that are saying, hey, 
we're going to start looking at investment in renewable energy. And that's an important element. So for those of you that are not in renewable energy, for those of you that are not investing in, like, I want that to be a priority. And therefore, we're going to start driving that. Now, that's not saying that you have to take all the 100 steps to try to solve for, for uh, global warming. But it does start the process of actually starting to, I'm not, I'm not going to call it trickle-down effects because, you know, I, I hate mm-hmm. that term. But I think it's, it's like a chain reaction that sort of starts that process, right? Yeah. And I, if you want to bring it back to the reason why I say courage is that if you don't take that first step, you can't do the rest of that race. You know, people ask me, how were you ever do, able to do a, you know, half Ironman, right? Or even run half a marathon. It's part of like, you start by running, you start by taking the step. Like, frankly, like you, if you can't, you know, you can't yeah, do half a marathon all at once, you run for a minute. Let, let's use that example, though, of athletics, because what I actually see is somebody like, for instance, the CrossFit Games just wrapped up this last weekend, and the winner for the fifth time in a row is a guy named Matt Frazier, fittest guy on the planet by like a country mile compared to his competitive set. That's the Yale endowment, Matt Frazier. So it would be like asking him, hey, can you run a mile? Yeah, I can run a mile. Of course I can run a mile. I'm Matt Frazier. You're not talking about a group of people who have no uh, connection to uh, an infrastructure, who are not networked in with politicians and power brokers and all these people everywhere who don't, people who don't know better. They do know better. This is the second largest endowment in the world, probably. If it's the biggest in the country, it's probably the second largest in the world. And these guys are taking this very fine, polite step. And I'm, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's so mediocre relative to who they are that if they waited this long to take this step, you would have thought that they would have gone and taken a much more braver step. So all I'm saying is my standard for courage is significantly right. higher. Yeah, no, look, I, I can't argue with that because I do think that the solve is the full thing, the full spectrum. I just simply don't, don't believe that. I, I, I guess I believe that this does have an impact. I think it sends a pretty strong signal uh, to all these different funds that are out there that want that are vying for you know the investment from the endowment of Yale, and that has a trickle down effect to actually getting these services to start to change. Now, I think the next step to your point does then start looking at well, okay be, because by having that more diverse staff on hand, I think it immediately opens up the opportunity for the kinds of entrepreneurs, the kinds of opportunities that you start to look at. Because it just happens, man. Like we tend to, our, you know, people tend to bring their own personal networks into these conversations. It's amazing what happens is that when you hire one person that is diverse, all of a sudden your access to a lot more diverse, uh, you know, people all of a sudden multiplies. Yeah. Well, fair enough. So it's gonna it's gonna remain a, a cringe for me for those reasons. And that's, fair enough. Let's um let's move on to um to end Latinx exclusion. What's this about? Uh, this was an actual an open letter that was uh, signed by over 270 Latinx showrunners, creators, uh, TV and feature writers, um, including folks like Lynn Manuel Miranda, who is best known for Hamilton, and a bunch of other folks, right? Um, they're basically calling for systematic change in the entertainment industry. Now, to quote some of the things that they included on this letter, um, and they said, look, as we come to the end of Hispanic Heritage Month, which, by the way, for those who didn't know, October 15th was the end of Hispanic Heritage Month. It actually goes across September and October. Uh, you say, in the midst of a global pandemic and continued racial injustice, many of us in the Latinx community have found it difficult to celebrate. Inspired by the activism of the Black and Indigenous communities, many of whom also identify as Latinx, we stand in solidarity with our fellow Black, Native, and Indigenous writers, co-signing their WGAW open letters and echoing their demands for systematic change in our industry. Now, what this letter really points to is the fact that while the Latinx community 
um, or Latino community, however we want to, because we had our Latinx well, conversation you said there's two, before. There's 270 people who signed this? Uh, that might be the same 270 who know what Latinx is, <laughs> according to our last show. <laughs> no, no, no comment. Um, so uh, what this points out, though, is a discrepancy between the population representation of about 18.3% of U.S. population being Latino, right, or Latinx, uh, that is just not reflected in film and, t- and TV, right? There are only about 4.7% of feature writers and 8.7% of T-writers that are Latinx. Um, and as you go up in the ranks, like showrunner levels, uh, showrunner levels, then those stats just get basically worse. Now, what they're specifically were asking for is they're asking for greenlighting Latinx-fronted projects, respecting all aspects of intersection in the Latinx culture representation, and, and hiring Latinx creators for non-Latinx projects. Now, I think all those are actually super, super interesting to know what they're asking for. But just to give you the last point, and then I'll let you sort of respond to it, is that this does, this letter uh, does follow a study that was done by CAA and Parrot Analytics in, back in actually early October. And that study found that there is an audience demand for shows with diverse casts that is up 113%, uh, which actually greatly surpasses the industry supplies of shows that, are, that have diverse casts of only about 42%. So you have this dynamic, at least according to the study, where you have audiences that are looking for more diverse, diverse uh, uh, cast in their content that they want to consume. But yet, when you look at the actual supply of content that has diverse uh, uh, representation, is actually you know a lot, a lot less. And that's for cast members. I'm not speaking to the folks that are behind the scenes, that are the writers, showrunners, etc. And you know, part also what this letter sort of speaks to is the fact that they think that even when there is representation. Latinos still overwhelmingly get put into these buckets of stereotypes that are just not don't represent well what this community actually is. Yeah, the most meaningful um, quote that I read in this, at least to me, the one that kind of stuck out, I'm going to um, probably struggle to find it. Oh, here it is. Um, and it's from a New York Times op-ed. It's a link from the letter itself out to a New York Times um, editorial that states, quote, white elites cannot muffle a huge, vibrant community for decades and not expect consequences. For Latinos in the Trump era, these consequences are deadly, from Hurricane Maria to Walmart shooting in El Paso and pandemic, as well as soaring hate crimes, et cetera. So it, it, it struck out to me for two reasons. Um, and, and by the way, I don't always no, no, no. want to go first. I, wanna, <laughs> I, de- I definitely want to hear of your cringe or courage on this one, maybe even. But, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll just share with you a couple things really quick. Um, the 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 one thing that struck out was this idea of of white elites muffling this vibrant community, and I'm thinking to myself, the people that I have again a lot of friendships with, personal interactions with, part of my personal network, who are in the rooms making a lot of the decisions on the business side and on the content side, these are folks who are maybe maybe elite, and they're and they're definitely overwhelmingly white from an, from an ethnicity standpoint, but they're also very much politically aligned with the same people right. that probably wrote this letter, right? So right. it's almost like we don't think about it in those terms, but I I find it very interesting that it seems that one of the biggest gatekeepers to this actually happening are people who are actually progressive uh, whites that are in these different um, you know situations and 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 uh, and positions. And I definitely don't hear that talked about at all. Like I don't. I, I think that is a very interesting, super controversial, nuanced, I'm sure, discussion, but one that I think needs to be talked about. And the second thing, which I don't like about, I'll give you my thoughts on on the overall letter, what I like and I don't like, but the thing about making it instantly political, because I think. When when we do that in a, in a in a time and season that is so political, it 
it you know instantly turns this into a into kind of political discourse as opposed to the business potential that could be had by better understanding what people are missing right and so it just gets yeah. very polarized very very quickly and yeah. that part that quote as an example is part of the reason it has some of the challenges that i had with with this whole thing are, are encapsulated in that quote well you know so i would say the the first point you're making about sort of talking to white elitists and who actually makes the decision. I mean, this is a letter, open letter to Hollywood. Hollywood. That's not right? a, that's so not that mega is, country. Right. That is who's actually runs Hollywood, right? You're going to have people that are probably more liberal than not um, and overwhelmingly white. And that's just part of what it is. But I think that's what I find uh, when I start thinking about whether or not this is cringe or, or courageous. I, I like the fact of being able to call out your own, call out what you know, the group that you're part of, because in many ways, of course, for many of these Latinx, you know, creators, I'm sure a number of them sort of fall in the same kind of liberal spectrum as well. And that's part of the part that we don't see enough of, right? The, the political piece that you're speaking to is easy to call out politically the group that you're not associated with. It's easy to point out all the defects and all the issues that the other group has. I think it's much harder to say, look at your own and say, hey, guys, we're filling ourselves here. We may in concept or in theory agree with what good looks like in terms of how we want this country to operate. But when we look about how we're actually operating within our own industry, there is a massive disconnect between creating between saying that we want to create opportunities and then the actual opportunities that exist. Right. So from that stand, when I read this, while there's parts of this letter and the ways it's proposed, where I could see someone being like, cringe because of the political aspect. I understand that, but I put it more in the courage segment sector because you also have some big names of people that are, in essence, calling out the same folks that they have to go back to and ask for jobs, ask for funding, ask for them to greenlight things. So having someone like Alin Manuel Miranda, who is super successful, right? He's also in the same rooms and some of the people that he's partnered with are the people that are making the calls of why this thing is not more diverse. But he's been one that I think has been able to literally break the mold, took this concept of Hamilton and completely reconceptualized it. And can also say that, by the way, when you do it and you do it right, it could be massively successful. Here we have one of the most successful Broadway shows ever and is done with like complete diverse insights into how you created from the music to the casting, et cetera, right? So that's a guy that can say with, a, with authority, hey, like this is not just because it's a, the right thing to do. It's the right business thing to do because that's what the audience actually want. And by the way, and it's not just diverse audiences, it's all audiences, because that also applies really well to the non-diverse audiences. Correct. So that's why when I think of this, my initial, when I, the headline was a cringe, I got to be honest. When I first heard it, like, this letter, I'm like, oh, here you go, another letter, right? But then I read it and I think about it, especially in the context that you're bringing up, which I think is a good one. It's like, no, I actually think there's more courage to this. And in, in, in some ways, taking advantage of the, of the moment without being opportunistic. Because I don't think they're being opportunistic. I do think it's trying to make, take advantage of the moment. And saying, listen, we we know there's like these really big serious issues happening. Because I actually talk about it in the letter. Having said that, how people view us as a community matters, right? How people view us relative to crime, relative to that impacts how people feel about immigration, how people feel about policing. Because if the only you know way that I could think of Latinos is when they're playing gang members in a in a show, then that's the perception that yeah. I'm going to have about that community. Of course, and those are all noble things. I think we all agree with the, with the idea that that the richness of our culture of, a, of the Latino culture is such that it's a like a talk about a seedbed for storytelling. There's just so such amazing stories that have been told and can still be told about it. Then to limit it to just these sort of you know stereotypes and characters um, is is a shame. 
uh, and and certainly not something that should that should be uh, encouraged or supported. But so you're a courage on this one. I'm a courage. On okay. That one, yeah. So um, it may, and by the way, before I tell you what I am, um, I do want to just quickly push back a little bit on what you said was perhaps the motivation here is to call out our own and all of us get better by kind of pointing out our deficiencies. I would agree with that. If we were talking about a group that was known for, I don't know, like, you know, animal husbandry or baking cookies or, you know, arts and crafts furniture, but we're talking about Hollywood, we're talking specifically about writers, and we're talking about people who have no problem expressing themselves and being articulate about what they mean at all. And so what I'm referring to is that I think what it is, is identifying this elitism but never identifying the people behind the elitism. It gives the, it gives the elitist a pass to be able to say, it's not me. There's no way it's me because I'm in Hollywood. It can't be me. It's some other person in some dark office somewhere, who knows where, making these decisions, keeping us all down. So why I think it's not genuine is because I don't see them calling it out by name and saying, guys, we're supposed to believe this. This is supposed to be what we're doing, but we're not living up to those expectations. That would be powerful. But what this is, is rallying against the elite. And it's like, wait a minute, who are you yelling at? These are all the same folks that's, that presumably share a lot of this kind of thinking and ideology, and that's why I, I don't know if I agree with what your your so your your preference would be that they would call out like heads of studios more directly my, or like no I'm, I'm I'm curious because I think maybe not heads of studios but that they would say listen guys the elite that we're complaining about these white elites are people who who say who may say something or vote a particular way but are not living up to it that's a message I haven't heard. Yeah, I think that is a message. I agree with you. That could be way more discreetly spelled out in this, for sure, right? Because we, every time we have an Oscars nomination, how many speeches do we get about diversity and about inclusion? But yet, when we look at what actually happens day to day and who gets represented, there's a, a big gap that is happening there. So this is a disconnect between what the sentiment that gets that gets uh, you know expressed on a day to day basis around this industry to the practices that are actually happening. It is a letter to Hollywood. I mean, I think the only way to, to do it would be, I think two things you could do is one would be just to be a lot more discreet in terms of who you're actually speaking about, right? Who is the people that are not making decisions? Who's not greenlighting the project, et cetera? So I think that you could, you know, you can make an argument that the letter didn't fully address that. Although I would still, I would still argue that because what they're talking about is increasing representation and casting and behind, both in front of the camera, behind the camera. You are speaking to the, those people that make the decisions, Right. So to, to that point, you could be more specific, but I don't think it's necessarily as as needed here. And maybe number two would be is be very specific of what you're actually asking for, right? Because I think sometimes we say that, you know, represent the, or increase diversity representation as a very broad kind of statement. Although in this case, I, I do think that at least they try to do that, right? They were very specific about greenlighting Latinx fronted projects, respecting all aspects of intersections of the Latinx culture representation, which means... Really, don't just put us in those roles, in those positions that are just stereotype, that fit into a, a maybe the Hollywood narrative, but I say the narrative that really is representative of this culture. And then lastly, hiring Latinx creators for non-Latinx projects. I think that last point, honestly, we didn't really touch on this before, but I like that last point a lot, specifically because we talk about Salah, you and I, Charlie, which is the, the whole idea that you could actually insert diversity into the full product suite that would actually make it more appealing to everyone, not just those that are specific for, for Latinos or, or African-Americans, whatever may be the case. So I do think there is an opportunity to increase diversity in all projects, not just when you're greenlighting 
that one show that just happens to have 100% cast of Latinos or African-Americans, whatever may be the case. So I, I think those are maybe the, the ways to uh, try to make it more specific to your point. I like that last point too. Hire us for non-Latinx projects. We are always talking about this. The idea of bringing somebody in to your company to lead diversity or lead the Latino thing, who is Latino is awesome. But when you bring in that person to lead engineering, to lead legal, to lead, to be your COO, that's where you can really kind of begin to move the needle. So I like that. However, at least... I, you know, uh, from an ideological or philosophical standpoint, in a way, it kind of runs afoul of their first premise, which is no stories about us without us, right? He's, they say if you're non, a non-Latino or non-Latinx and you're offered a Latinx-centered project with no Latinx writer, basically refuse it or consider it. Yeah. And that's right, something that you have seen this sort of counter movement of people who've been historically casted, especially in the cases of, I think, of a lot of animation, right? You've seen cases of this maybe it was is a family guy it's a couple of, of these of these animated shows of which some of the characters it may have even been i'm sure simpsons simpsons had this issue as well uh some of those characters that were diverse characters in the show were being actually voiced by non-diverse yeah. people so in some ways i get that but i also I, I have a little bit of a i have a little bit of a pause with that but I, but i do understand the spirit of it right and again it's just a question of being sort of philosophically or ideologically consistent right the idea that i'm i want to take on projects that are not necessarily latino in context but i don't want anybody else who isn't latino doing projects that are it's it's a bit of a logical inconsistency and i understand the reason why you know people want to do it but but i think if we're going to be specific about that charlie really what i where i see the bigger the bigger pushback is in the case where you're having non-latinos taking on specifically Latino or diverse specific roles, right? Which is different than saying... Just being able to work on a project. Exactly, because you you may have multiple characters of which it doesn't have to be African-American, Latino, whatever would be the case. And why not in those cases have representation? I think that's part of the issue that people are trying to address is that why do we only get the roles... When, where like the role has to be Latino, otherwise it doesn't make sense to be part of the story. Why can't I just be part of the story? It's more representative of what this country is anyway, right? So yeah. I think it's more, it's more to that point. I get it. So net net, then you are on this. So I think courage. Although I would say maybe opposite of last week, you made I think a very fair point of saying that what would make this even more of in the courage category for me, not having heard your heard your position, is I do think if a stronger call out call out to say in essence by us not doing this. By us not creating more opportunities for this for these Latinx creators, we're basically talking out of both sides of our mouths. If we're going to be honest of, of Hollywood as a as a culture, as a political sort of ideology, we can be all for representation, for fairness, in many ways the things that we talk about all the time in these in these award programs, and yet not do this ourselves. So I think there was a call out, but not to the degree that you that you mentioned. So I still put it in courage. But I agree with you that if it had that element, I think it would be even further, further along in my position of be more courage. It was also a very close call for me, but I have to put it, I have to edge it out into the cringe category. And only because of its tone, it reads like a ransom letter. Um, you know, in fact, the whole site is like this violent red that like literally burns your rods and cones out if you stare at it for too long. I mean, it's literally hard to read physically. Um, and terminology like we're incensed and demands and all that stuff. And I understand people and they're righteously, look, we've been doing what I've been doing this personally for going on 15 years. So I understand the frustration that can come about by it. But we talked about in an earlier show that real change to me comes when it's more tied to relationships and people actually engaging with other people as human beings and not feeling like, you know, they're sort of uh, forced to it. Is or like there's like there's people with pitchforks at the gate, right? And look, every now and then those revolutions are necessary, and I'm not suggesting that, that they're not. It's just this particular thing, 
at this particular time, I'm just going to be honest, when I read it, it just read like kind of a ransom note. And I thought people will comply here, but it's compliance and it's not engagement. And I don't think that that creates long-term results. So without saying that everything in it was wrong or bad, I just, on the whole, again, that's what makes this segment fun. If I have to pick, I think it's in the cringe, not the courage. All right. So we are... Two for two. Oh, oh for, oh for two. Well, two we? for two being an opposite size. I was going to okay, say. Okay, very good. Let's yeah. see if oh, we can. Oh for two will be on the same side. Let's see if we can come to some consensus on the following one. I think this one should be pretty quick. So, um, Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner, senior advisor to the White House and most famously son-in-law of President Trump, uh, on a Fox and Friends interview said uh, the following: and "I quote: One thing we've seen in a lot of the Black community, which is mostly Democrat, is that the President Trump's po- policies." are the policies that can help people break out of the problem that they're complaining about. But he can't want them to be successful more than they want to be successful. So he talked a little bit more beyond that, but that's sort of the gist of the comment. So as expected, the response across social and, and media in general was pretty negative to that to the comment that comes oh, off as being fairly tone deaf. Well, um, tone deaf, I think, is the best case uh, maybe the best interpretation of it. I think I heard straight up, you know, racist, dog whistle, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I mean you are going to hear comments like racist. And, and I, to me, that really more is is not the individual comment, is the suite of sentiment that that kids sweet, sort of get. S-U-I-T-E, not, not, not the other kind of sweet. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for the for the clarification. So I think that's really what that comes from. But uh you know, the the reason why, and I'm happy to go first because I think you, you've you been going first in the last couple of ones. So in this one, when I heard this, you know, not only do I think it's extremely dumb of Jerry Kushner, Kushner to make this kind of comment at the nth hour when you really have made all this work. Like if you think about what President Trump and his administration has been trying to do from a political standpoint is trying to find a way at the last minute to do a full-on press court. Uh, yeah, court press, press court. Full court press. Court press, full court mm-hmm. press, sorry. Mm-hmm. I don't full even play press. basketball. Yeah, full court press, sorry, uh, as it relates to try to convert some of the African-American vote. Part of this we talked about last week with the plan and plan, with uh, even if Ice Cube hates to, to hear this, with the implied endorsement, but even, I know he doesn't like, he doesn't want to admit to this, but at least that the, the sort of the association definitely helps. And then Jerry Kushner comes out and says, well, listen, we're, we're doing everything for them. They just got to want to be able to help themselves. And the tone of this is goes back to, I think, a sentiment that has been, unfortunately, you know, communicated over years and decades that somehow African-Americans in, in this country, a big part of, their, of the reason they're in, in the position that they're in is, is their fault. Not wanting to be working hard enough, you know, victim mentality. There's all of these sort of negative association that comes with this comment that even with good intent, and, and, you know, tone deaf is probably, the, but to your point, the best sort of way to interpret it with good intent. It's still terrible. Politically, I think it's, it's, it's just dumb to do this. Like, there is no reason. It's saying like, hey, we're doing everything we're supposed to do. It's your fault that you don't even understand what's good for you. And I think in no cases, by the way, if anyone should understand the, the, how wrong it is to do that, it should probably be the Trump administration. Because in my mind, part of the reason why Trump won in 2016 was it because of this tone deafness from the from the Democratic Party of sort of thinking that if you somehow believe in this guy and this and Trump, you are the, the what, what did Hillary call them, the despicables or I forgot what was the word. Uh, deplorables. She, deplorables. Thank you. Mm-hmm. But it's like you're like you're just not smart enough. That's why you're voting for this guy. And in some extent, he's kind of saying that. I mean, Biden just did that more recently on uh, Charlemagne the God in that show right months ago, where he said if you're not if you're going to vote for Trump, you're not black. Right. This idea that you have to, you must. 
yeah, vote but, in this but particular that, see, way. I would, I would say that's a very, it's, it's, it's bad. We talked about it. We're like, that's, you should never say that. But it has a very different sentiment to it, right? It's like somehow, you, you're right. I mean, I, could put, I guess I put it in broad terms that it's somehow similar. But to me, this whole thing is like, hey, you just got to work hard enough. You just don't, If you don't work hard enough, like we're doing everything for you, so it's your fault. I think that's a, a just terrible. Yeah, one is, um, one is bad because it distances and makes the group or the person seem like a transactional thing that doesn't matter, Kushner's uh, comment. Right. Biden's comment, the effect of it is you're part of our team, but you're a means to an end. And that's, so yes, to me, it's like, they're different shades of bad, but yeah. they're both bad. Yeah, the Biden one to me is more tied to wanting to tie it to identity. Like it's somehow, and that's what whether well, something right. that does happen in the in African American community. And I've seen it firsthand with my ex-wife where people are like, Oh, you're gonna get your black card removed. Like if you're not with this camp, whatever that camp is, yeah, then you get your, your card removed, right? And I think that's uh, of course coming from someone like Biden was terrible. But this at this time, at this moment, with all that work that Trump has been trying to do. Well, that kind of message, I just think is is just is just dumb. So the net cringe. net is 100% you're 100 cringe. cringe. So I'm right there with you. I think it is cringe. I think it's you know perhaps um, I'd phrase it a little bit different. I think I put it into the category of an unforced error. Um, I think especially because the context, which is always important, was an interview about the platinum plan and about Ice Cube's participation in the platinum plan, and Kushner specifically saying that they had connected with Ice Cube, that they had incorporated some of his thinking, that they had reached out to him. And he made this comment, the reason I say it's an unforced error is because if you listen to the interview, there was no reason to insert that at that particular moment. It wasn't actually responding to yeah. anything. It was this like- like the worst, like the worst one to throw in there, right? Where it just like made, you're doing it to yourself. It just made no sense at all to do that. By the way, the headline on the video, the, the you know, what, what they put on the on on, on The, the Chiron or the little- Thing on the yeah, the little bug. It literally yeah. says Kushner on working with Ice Cube on plan and plan. Which, by the way, if Ice Cube is here seeing this, reading this, I'm sure he's hating it. Yeah, because that definitely sounds like oh, you're collaborating, you're hand in hand, and this is like a joint I, I, effort. I don't know if he hates that because I think he admitted that. I think what he would resent is the idea that he endorsed the party. What he was, he, I don't. He had no issues from the interviews I saw of working with the people that he said right, were in but power. If, if that working, then but sort of endorsing is a different thing sure. than working. Okay, with that's people. fair. Yeah, but but to your point is like. Taking what could be a positive moment and just like putting exactly. your full like one hundred percent. It it came across dismissive. The, the even the 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 lex the vernacular of what people are complaining about. It's what people are concerned about. What their issues have historically been. You could have phrased it in a very different way and said, you know, the the part about wanting it as bad is like, look, we know the black community wants these problems to get fixed as much as we do, and therefore we're to get like. You could have phrased it in so many different ways. To phrase it the way that he did, he came across as an as an outsider looking in, which is never a good look. And somebody who was kind of detached from this and kind of looking at it as a transaction or a means to an end, which is precisely what Biden did in his earlier thing. And that's precisely why I give it a cringe. So I absolutely agree with you 100%. I think it was definitely, um, you know, an unforced error. I will say one thing, though, and that is um, not related to this particular story, but definitely related to the way that um, black voters are thinking about the campaign coming up and some really interesting statistics from 538. Um, about black voters and particularly young black voters, 18 to 44, making dramatic changes in likelihood to support Trump in this upcoming election from a deficit of 82 to a deficit now of 71, which is still 
terrible, but I mean, monster gain, right, relative to and this is where from, that's from been. What, Charlie? This is from 538 from uh, Nate Silverman's. Oh, got I think it. That's his name. Uh, so it, young black. I mean, voters, that will be a, obviously a huge gain if that ends up being the case, right? Because historically, yeah. even with Trump having gone, what do we say, eight percent of, of the African American vote overall, right, versus yeah. versus six percent, that will be a huge gain. I mean, that's actually part of. And I know that's probably a topic for a different conversation, but you know, on the one hand, as and, someone that is, you want, want sorry, to sorry, I just just want to throw one yeah, one yeah. point there to to just give some sense of the numbers that I just rattled off. The eight percent and six percent were actually of the votes those that were African American who voted for those candidates. And that's across all age groups. That's total across, votes. Right. Th- this actually refers to likely voters in a sample. So these are people who may or may not vote. And, and specifically this, for 1834? Specifically for overall for black, overall, um, basically Biden, um, the, the percentage breakout would be that about 18% of all black uh, voters, this is a you know 538 phone survey, right. 18% would support President Trump. In the category of 18 to 44, the number is closer to, according to this, it's a negative 57. So this would be... So 44%. 44%, something like that, which is a huge, huge. number. I mean, just just. But again, these the, they right. may not vote, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm no, just I, wanting to I clarify that. Um, I mean, I will be very curious to see how this looks, you know, hopefully at some point <laughs> in the next few weeks. Obviously, the election is happening next week, but I will be, that's actually, this is probably one of the stats to take, a, you know, to keep an eye out to see what ends up happening with the African-American vote, to what degree uh, has that you know support to the Democratic Party eroded, or or the other way to get together is that the Republican Party is able to sort of capture some of that? You know, as someone that, and it's pretty clear for anyone listening to this podcast for more than five minutes, understands that I'm a fairly liberal person and and do and I'm a Democrat. Um, so while on the one hand, as someone that believes in in what Biden's trying to do and, and hopes he gets elected, I obviously want everyone to that can and, and should to vote for him. At the same time. I got to be honest, I kind of like the idea of having a little bit more of a diverse point of view. I think part of the challenge that, unfortunately, the African-American community has been, you know, hampered with is that because they are seen as sort of one group that votes in one direction. And we talked about this before, which is you kind of get, get in a situation where we, we could potentially get ignored by both sides. Correct. And one it, group doesn't think they can't get to the other people like have you automatically, right? So that's a challenge. If anything, for the, we keep on talking about the power of the Latino vote, which is true. Right, and I'm really hoping that when we when the numbers come out after election, the number of turnout of Latino voters is massive. And while I want the I want 100% Latinos to vote for vote Democrat, at the same time, I like the idea of having a more diverse base of Latinos because that means they're relevant to everyone, Correct. right? And everyone should be trying to get that vote and get that you know get that in, in which means that more policy, regardless of 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 actual political party will be more tailored to addressing the needs of that Latino constituency, which to me is a win. I agree with you 100%. Okay, so then we're in agreement then on our friend Jared Kushner. That is a hardcore cringe. And now we move on to the last uh, Courage or Cringe of our podcast today, and that is Kanye West blew up the internet on Joe Rogan's podcast. By the way, I checked the um, earlier today. There's almost 10 million views of that on YouTube. The top ever Rogan podcast was with Elon Musk two years ago, and it's got 30 million this has 10 million after like less than a week. Right. So we're on our way. Yeah. So, I mean, there's not much tea up to say other than to say that Kanye West, um, actually the, the, the roots of this is Kanye reached out on social, which is he's kind of known to do that. 
he's a very also effective user of Twitter. And I think reached out to Joe Rogan saying, hey, I want to get on your podcast. How do I do that? And to his credit, Joe Rogan like, great, let's do a it. A week later, he was on. Yeah, yeah, about about that, right? So because he saw like the, it started getting covered on social, et cetera, that he was obviously pushing to get to get um, to get included. Now, I think as most people know, Kanye West um, is you know besides everything that he does as a musician, entrepreneur, et cetera, he's also running for president, right? And he is uh, it's been a very controversial kind of run. Came started very very late. Had, I think, one event only that I could think of that I heard of, right? And I forgot where it happened, but there was, like, leaked video of it. There was a lot of really negative commentary about that That sort of his, his uh, um, it was more like a, like a rally that he was, like, a little mini rally. People, like, walking out and leaving. And there's been a lot of rumors over, over time. And some of it is actually not rumors that he's actually, self, I think, self-diagnosed as being bipolar. So always issues about his mental health. And, you know, he got a chance to go on Joe Rogan. They did about a three-hour, maybe a little bit less than three-hour uh, conversation. And, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff came out in the actual podcast. Yeah. Uh, so I guess my first, before I even get into anything, my first question for you is, like, what are we courage or cringing about? Because there's so much there. Yeah. That we could kind of try to unpack or even well, overall. I, I, I like, mean, it, I, I just want to just so we're on the same, say, like, what the rules are in specific on this one because I it's such a broad, broad I think topic. The, I, I think the only thing that we can probably say is the entire appearance itself and whether or not in its totality it was something that was courageous or something that was cringeworthy. I think that's the only way to look at this. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I would say maybe I start on this one as well, right? So, when I think, when I, when I saw the interview, uh, and it took me, uh, listen and saw it, it took me days to kind of get through it, but I was predetermined that I was going to get through every single part of it. Um, I frankly walked away with a, a slightly different point of view of Kanye West, of, of this, of Kanye West from now versus what, at least my interpretation of what Kanye West has been historically and as a musician, et cetera, and an entrepreneur, right? Uh, and my, I think my assessment of him is as follows. One is, um, and I'll start with the most, maybe the most obvious or the most timely for what we're talking about, which is presidential election. Is So Kanye, as a presidential candidate, in my mind, has no business going running for, for president, like zero business. As a matter of fact, when you heard in the actual interview, and Joe, to his credit, like that, this is the like the best that I've ever seen Joe Rogan, like A, be patient, because he, for the first He's a good hour, listener. he didn't talk. Like He's he literally just, just let... Kanye just just talk, which is a, probably a, a really good, smart way to do it. But he tried as much as possible. And he really was trying to help him out, I think. He was trying to help him out and say, hey, if you're going to be on my podcast for three hours, let's at least use a little bit of that time to talk about whatever policies, whatever your point of view is of how you see yourself as president. Because we can't ha- I can't have you here for three hours and that's not literally not talk about it at all. And that's what happened. So he tried to multiple times try to come back to him and, and, and try to get him to answer your questions. And Kanye just either A, wasn't prepared, B, just couldn't focus enough for, for a period of, of a couple of minutes to actually give a concrete answer. I mean, the most memorable thing that I remember hearing from the from the full thing is that he said part of the reason why he thought he would be a good president, besides his own personal experience of building wealth and building an empire across multiple industries, which, look, you can make, you know, you can make an argument about that, is saying that Whenever he's giving a full set of information, when he's giving all information, he always makes the best decision. And that was maybe the most concrete thing that he said that someone listening that, you know, could say, okay, I guess. Like, it's, almost like, it's almost like he was thinking, 
I don't need to give you any information right now or a decision right now or a policy position because I don't know everything yet. Once I know everything, then what I pick right. it was, will not only be my policy position, but it'll be the right one. And it was two things. It was like, once I know everything, I can make the right decision. And number two, hey, I'm just a civilian. So if, you know, when I'm, because you kept on saying, when I'm president, I will have experts around me and I'm going to listen to those experts. And, you know, then I will have all the information and I'll make the Which, right decision. By the way, sounds and, and eerily, not a- eerily re- reminiscent to Donald Trump said very similar things. He's like, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a business guy. I will have the best generals and the best foreign whatever. And people, you know, dogged well, him too early well, on. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of hard not to make some correlations to Donald Trump. Right. Um, because I think, by the way, for everybody, Oprah, people running for the Democratic ticket, The Rock, who's supporting Biden, people wanting him to run, Michelle Obama, anybody who's not cut, cut from that political cloth has much more permission, whatever you think of Donald Trump, much more permission to enter the fray now than they ever did because oh, yeah, of no, Trump. Uh, Donald, and they actually talked about it in the podcast, like Donald Trump opened up a whole sort of new realm of, of possibility that just wasn't there before. Now, the you know, so so hearing him talk about that, hearing him talk about his ability to be a president, I think was just if that's the, the whole focus of the conversation, to me is a hundred percent cringe, right? Because there is he has no business being a president. Having said that, the reason why I walked away with a different perspective is that part of what I appreciate as someone that has been in the startup world for a while and really understands the I'm giving myself way too much credit, but but can could see the value of ideas. And how disruptive thinking can really sort of change industry. Whatever you may think of Kanye West, that guy is a fountain of ideas. Yes. He has so many thoughts. And if you actually take the time to listen to what he's saying and try to separate the noise from the actual ideas, because there is is all coming at once. He, he literally said in the, in, the, in the podcast that he thinks that most people think about things in, in black and white. He, he's, he's thinking constantly in full color. Yeah. And it's almost making that comparison. Like if you've never seen a color television before and all you were used to seeing was black and white and the first time you see color television you're like overwhelmed with how much information is it's hitting sensory you. overload that's basically what he is yeah and I understand that and look I, you know what I haven't mentioned here on this podcast but you know obviously is one of my children um, has a sensory disorder um, call it on the spectrum whatever you want to call it there's a thousand diagnoses and you talk to four different neurologists you'll get different ideas or different um, uh, you know conclusions but in any case he is a person my son who takes the inputs from the world and rather than than how they hit maybe you and I where they kind of come in order in a way like I smell something I see something I hear something for him they come all at once. And as a result of that, he has to deal with things in a different way. He's a straight-A student. He's very bright, all these different things. But he has to contend with that issue. And I'm not diagnosing Kanye West by any stretch of the imagination. But he's a person who has this kind of bandwidth for ideas that reminds me a little bit of my son's situation with sensory, except for in, the, in Kanye's case, they're coming out instead of going in. Right? There's like a thousand things coming out. And he has a limited governor to kind of filter them in, in one particular direction. But if you take each idea at its face and follow it all the way down, they're actually interesting ideas. But the presentation of all of them together at once at 1,000 miles an hour for three hours would overwhelm 90 plus percent of the human population. Right. And that's why there's such a response to when he talks this way. But look, I think of him in a category based on his success, based on the, on the things that he does, and based on reading his, his quotes less than listening to him, 
as somebody who probably would be in that very visionary kind of category of person who is going to, you know, and has built an incredible brand and many brands and created a new genre of music. Like all of those things make sense in a person like him. Um, And so I kind of start from that standpoint. Um, by the way, so I, I need you. What word you net out before I before I start oh, talking? Oh, so I, I would say in the when I think about the overall conversation, the overall point of view that I have, I actually put it in the courage category. I definitely put his political presidential aspirations in a hundred percent cringe. But you don't get to do that. You huh? don't get to do that. No, but the re- but but I, the reason I'm, I'm explaining why I yeah. put it in courage overall, right? The reason I put it in courage courage overall because I sort of take his aspirations for presidential as being. As being something that is actually, I the more I hear him, the more I hear the number of ideas that he has, I actually think it would be the worst kind of job for someone like him to actually be affected. It's a box, you think? It's a box that a guy like him will just like self-implode in like seconds, right? I think a guy like Kanye West. Now, the reality is he is very wealthy. He's done very well for himself. So he already has financial freedom to actually fully explore some of, some of his ideas, which he actually talked about. But that's a guy that... I, I really hope people listen to that, especially people that are that are they're managing funds and say, look, let's set aside some capital for a guy like this yeah. to just go out and just try things. Because while I don't put him in the same category as Elon Musk, who is on the engineering side and obviously way on the spectrum in terms of IQ, at the same time, the level of the creativity probably anyway, like the real spectrum, he's probably yeah, yeah. on that too. In the, in the in the actual level of creativity that Kanye has, I mean, that's where I, I walked away with more in the courage because I think Joe Rogan, and while I've been critical, I'm both a fan but super critical of him at the same time, which is very weird. I think he did the right thing by letting him actually unspool, just let it out, and in some time, and in some cases, actually reinterpret it. Yeah, what I Kanye saw- has said into a much more con- condensed version that the average listener could be like, oh, okay, that's what he was trying to say. And I think on that part, to Joe Rogan, which I, you know, maybe I, I wasn't giving him enough credit before, I was really impressed his ability to be able to interpret that just just slew of information that was coming out of Kanye. So the combination of the, basically that whole episode I put in the courage category for that reason. Okay, so this may surprise you because at the end of the show, we're going to end up with a 500 average, which is pretty good if we were a right fielder for a MLB That was a very team. long explanation as to why, but I, I think I needed <laughs> so to. So your, your courage is what I take I'm from, courage, from all of I'm that. Saying, yes, yes. Well, so I agree with you. I also am courage for the reasons that I've mentioned already, but probably the, the most important one, and this has come up, is that I love voices that dissent. That, to me, is a hallmark of what makes us the country that we are. And I think that we need that kind of dissent more now than we ever had. And the dissent that I'm talking about is somebody in Hollywood, somebody with all the the money and power doesn't need to do all this stuff, but saying things that are deeply unpopular to the same kind of like platform that got him to where he is, right? And also, as as a black person, deeply different, let's say, if not unpopular, but different than what you with the bulk to our earlier conversation about the way that the black community is typically or historically has voted um, is, is, you know, typically aligned with, or at least traditionally aligned with. So I like it, you know, first and for, for the reasons that I've mentioned about his visionary quality, I also like it because of the dissent that he does. And I actually like, again, I don't have the benefit of having heard the entire podcast you have. Um, I have not been able to get through all three and a half hours of it. Um, but I also identify with some of the, the core points that he made, right? The idea that he prioritizes his relationship with God over the job that he does, over the music industry. Well, as a person of faith, I completely understand that. God is number he one. He talked pro- about that a lot. 
a lot. And, and God, and, and I mm-hmm. honestly thought, like, as someone that is not super religious, like, I really appreciate his point of view. Like, it, it came off extremely sincere, not self serving. And the thing that he gets dinged a lot of is about being arrogant. And I thought, once again, part of the reason why I put it in the courage is that when you hear the the whole breadth of the entire conversation, I, I don't think the guy came off arrogant at all, which is kind of different for someone like him. I, there's been plenty of times where I've heard him speak before where he comes up extremely arrogant. In this well, case, he, he has gone... He's look, been humbled. Mm-hmm. I think faith has made him a lot more humble, well, well, which I love that. 100%. Look, and as a person of faith myself, I can tell you, and, and we talked about this earlier, that... I can definitely see over the course of the last couple of years a conversion that's taken place in Kanye, which has led to a lot of this stuff. And that's not uncommon. I mean, you see conversions all over the world, right, in in Christian faiths and other faiths, but people coming to an understanding of God and then changing their lives as a result. So the idea that he's prioritizing his relationship with God over all other things, well, that rings very true to me. God is my number one priority as an example, and then everything after that. the idea of him feeling bad, in quotes, about his own discography, like looking back at the records that he's made in the context now of himself as a believer and somebody whatever, and going like, gee, I wish I would have, like, all the billions of people have influence, and I wish I would have done things differently. Like, that's rings really true, because think about it. People, artists and people who are, like, moguls are generally not very self-critical about the things that they've done. Like, they can talk about the reasons why they weren't bigger or things were obstacles in their way, but they generally don't look back and say, like, gee, if... Like seeing my sculptures or my engineering work, like I'm just appalled by it, right? And and I think it was very honest and kind of vulnerable of him to say that, and so I like that. Um, the whole idea of his history with uh, bipolar disorder, you know, he acknowledges that and he says, look, in a way, we're kind of all medicated, right? He's like, yeah. you got kids that are using fluoride. I mean, look at all these drug commercials on the on the TV and the side effects. We kind of make a joke out of it, but like the commercial shows all these smiling people and the side effects are like, your arm will fall off. You might have suicidal ideation. You'll get like a head explosion. And like it's for elbow pain or something. I mean, so he in in you know in the context of that, I think he you know he made a good point about that. He talked about his thoughts about racism in the country and said, you know, he believes in racism, but the idea of like kind of leading with this idea that we're sort of that we're subjugated and we're always down doesn't really lead a lot to um, aspiration and things like that. He talked a lot about abortion being an, an, a huge pandemic, and if you are pro life and you believe that abortion is the taking of a life. And you just add up the numbers, and there's a thousand black babies every single day that are aborted. He's like, that's a lot bigger than coronavirus, a lot bigger than these different things. Yeah, you mentioned that stat, and I, I, I honestly, the first thing I want to do is go like look it up to see where, yeah. like, if that stat is real. I mean, it's, it's a real it's, stat. Well, super impressive, obviously, when you, the, when you hear it, when you put it in that kind of context. And while obviously that's a whole different topic, and I think we have it is. different points of view about it. I mean, I think the part that I thought was consistent with that is that he is being, you know, whether you agree with that stance or not. Whether you agree on on, I, I guess let me let me just 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 say what I want to say, which is like I think that ultimately he's being very clear that faith is now a big part of his life and is reflected in everything that he's trying to do. Sure, the whole thing about Sunday Sunday service, I think is what he called Sunday it. Sunday service. Mm-hmm. He basically walked away from the music industry for about I think about a year. I want to say uh, in doing this, and it was like his calling of service, right? Like, how do I use what my God given talents are? literally in this case, to actually help spread the word, right? And I know music, I know, so this is not about him being an expert in the in the word, but, you know, creating his version of it. And like that, I get it. I respect it. Like, I don't have to be, for, for someone that I understand, I definitely can understand your point of view as someone that is very religious, being like, great, I love hearing someone like him saying this. But for someone that is not super religious, 
I also respect kind of hearing that because I think you're consistent. Like it, it's clear that the, what your value system is has changed how you look at the world. And then you're sharing examples of how you're, you're making that come to life. I'm like, oh, okay. It's more than just talk. You're actually, you actually are taking that philosophy. And you're it living what you're, what you're so, saying. Yeah. I, I, you know, I can't be mad at that. Like I get that. Yeah. By the way, the stat is, I'm not exactly sure if he's quoting exactly this, but the, but the best stat on abortion to look at, in my opinion, is from the Guttmacher Institute. The Guttmacher Institute is a progressive think tank and provides a lot of their data to like Planned Parenthood. So it's certainly not something that can be accused of being kind of a pro-life thing. Um, and they claim just shy, it's about 900,000 abortions a year, of which a significant majority, in fact, the largest majority is black and brown um, you know, moms. So, and, and, and number one is black, actually number two is Latino. So the thousand a day is very much a real statistic. Anyway, my point is that, um, when you look at each one of these things, now the problem with this interview is he's saying nine things at the same time, yeah. right? But if you look at each it, of these individuals, very hard to follow, very yeah. hard to follow if these individual threads, they actually end up landing in a place where, you know, I think it's, it's uh, to your point, consistent and in keeping with how he views the world and for that reason, and the others that I've mentioned, for me, it is in the courage category. So that's Kanye from my standpoint. A lot, a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, so where do we start? We started with Quibi. We went on to uh, Yale University and Demand Letters and Jared Kushner and Kanye West quite a bit. Jesus, any final words of wisdom for our friends and listeners? Um. I don't know. I think we covered quite a quite a broad spectrum uh, in everything that we discussed. I mean, I maybe just kind of bring it back to Quibi. Look, it's easy to play Monday morning Monday morning quarterback with something like Quibi and say, "I knew it. It's going to fail." Here are all the twenty reasons. I'm sure any any of you do a search of like you know ten reasons why Quibi failed, you're going to find a, a slew of people talking about it, right? Um, and I think the thing about when I think about Quibi, maybe the way that I will recap it is that. There is nothing wrong. It's actually great to be a trailblazer, right? As a matter of fact, many times those people that have ignored the common norm are the ones that see ultimate success because they just see the world inside a different way. I think that's super valuable as important. But, but in doing that, I do think that the way to fine-tune that approach so that you don't end up in a quibby space literally is to actually stay connected to the consumer in that entire journey. So that even if you have a very different point of view of what value can be generated through product, content, et cetera, having that ability to quickly get that feedback from the consumers, understand, is it actually resonating? Are you solving an actual problem? Is there a real gra- gap or you're just, it was simply a nice marketing deck? I think that's ultimately what I think will help companies making sure that they don't find themselves in the situation where you have completely, completely missed the mark. Or in a position which when, the way that I that I would look at Quibi is that you find yourself with a, a an offering that is not at all differentiated, but yet competing against everyone, which is the worst possible position. I mean, so that's what I would say is like I like Trailblazers. Even when we, you know, we finish with Kanye, Kanye has done some really crazy stuff in terms of the things that he thinks about, but he understands like fashion, understands products, understands music. And I think in all of that has been able to make some really interesting calls that have ultimately paid off. And there is a balancing act. Even I would say one of my lessons as, you know, having been a CEO is that there's a part of you that you have to be sort of so determined to the point of being stubborn, right? Uh, even a little bit foolish that you can somehow figure this out while other people can't. 
But if you over-index on that side, then that's where disaster hits. So you have to be able to kind of pull yourself back and have enough people around you that can tell you the truth, that are close enough to the end consumer to be able to give you that kind of feedback so you're able to make those, those course corrections. So that's, to me, in, in essence, when I think about the sort of the bookends of what we talked about today is the thing that I would say. And, and to whether, whether it's Kanye, whether it's Quibi, I love the thinking out of the box, being really creative, trying to, you know, to change, change the industry altogether. But without those other elements there, I think that's when disaster can happen. On that, we definitely agree. I think on the consumer piece, the, to the greatest extent that you can have the consumer in the building and making decisions that correlate and correspond to the product or service that you're building for them, the better. And I don't know all the ins and outs, but again, going from what I do know and from what I've seen, there could have been some improvement in that regard with respect to Quibi of having the decisions and the people running the show be a little bit closer to the folks that they were actually trying to reach. So, um, but uh, anyway, so agreed. We'll leave on a, on a, on a note of, uh, of agreement. Thank you very much, Jesus, for another great episode. Thank, Thank you. you, everybody, for listening to the Diversity Remix, and we will see you again next time. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez, with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.